Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The title Son of Man is a literal translation of the Hebrew phrase Ben Adam. In Hebrew, the name Adam means man. As such, the biblical expression Son of Man, like the modern phrase human being, applies to anyone and everyone. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in the Chronicles of Narnia, where he refers to human beings as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. But if everyone is an ordinary son of Adam, why does Matthew elevate son of man as a unique title for Jesus? The answer lies in examining biblical parallels that are part and parcel with Matthew's proclamation of the kingdom, the elevation of the title shepherd to a kingly status, of weakness to a sign of God's might, and the crucifixion to a symbol of victory. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 9 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 327 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, Dr. Benton, we spent some time reflecting on the tension between the title Ben-Adam, which is an ordinary title that you could apply to anyone. You're a Ben-Adam. I'm a Ben-Adam. We are human beings. This ordinary title, Son of Man, and the imperial title, the kingly title, Son of God or Son of the Gods, and the way in which the Gospel of Matthew is deconstructing and disrupting our expectation about the kind of king that Jesus will be in the kingdom. This is a very important point. Matthew is presenting you with the kingdom, but he is disrupting your notion of king and kingdom. We saw it again early in Matthew with this whole question of the city of David and Jesus as the shepherd king who undoes David's self-reliance in his ascendancy to the throne as a king when he abandoned his role as shepherd. We know that the major theme of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. From the literal first verse, you can't get away from the fact that this is talking about what kingship is. We know that the Son of Man, according to the disciples, people say that the Son of Man is the prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist. And we know from Peter's statement that the Son of God is related to the Messiah, to the anointed king, a kingly title, if not an imperial title. When Jesus then goes back and says, the Son of Man is risen from the dead, me, my first reaction is like, ah, oh, shoot, I was thinking it was going to be Son of God. That makes sense. I want him to be the king. But 
you know, based on what you just said, Father, and what we've been both saying, this whole thing is uprooting, overturning our idea of what the king is supposed to be. So me as the reader, I'm struggling through Matthew's text trying to sort this out. And Jesus pedantically is teaching his disciples and us readers the same thing over and over and over again in new language so we finally might be able to get it. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. The first and most important point in this verse is that they are coming down from the mountain. Recall in the previous verses, Peter was all excited about building a shrine so that people could come to the mountain and effectively submit to a construction built of stone. In that matrix, Peter is trying to control the divine teaching and use it to bring people to him or to that place. I say to him because that's the critique always of the cultic temple in the biblical tradition. You want to lock Jesus in a tomb of stone and people have to pay admission to come see Jesus. But as you know, in all four Gospels, when you run to the tomb, there's nothing to see. Instead, in keeping with the Exodus tradition, Jesus, who is the one who bears the scroll of the Torah and at the same time embodies it, flanked by Moses and Elijah, Jesus comes down from the mountain. The teaching moves. You can't pin it down. This is a basic, basic mechanism that appears again and again throughout the Old and the New Testament. Every time the human being wants to build a shrine to pin down the teaching, God moves the teaching out through the people into the wilderness. So he is coming down from the mountain with the scroll of the teaching and commanding them once again not to talk about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised. Will people understand that a Son of Man has been enthroned as king? Do they understand what that means? If you talk to them about the shiny, exciting miracle, are they going to expect a Son of God to be raised who looks like Caesar? That's the tension. But the key is that the resurrection is linked to the ascendancy of this kingdom, the victory of this kingdom. The kingdom is ultimately for the Jew and the Gentile. Any human being, any Ben Adam, is invited to this kingdom and is offered citizenship to this kingdom as long as they submit to this king. But what you're saying, Father, about locking down this teaching, I think is so important because it occurred to me Peter in the last chapter really likes to make the proclamation and to stand out, to be the head of the class. Like our Canadian friends say, he's a keener. He likes to be keen with the teacher. Jesus picked him and a couple other guys to see this very special event. If Jesus didn't say, don't tell anyone about it, what would happen? Peter would go around and start telling people, well, you know me, I saw this thing. I was invited I have special insight. You should listen to me. The ones who are there make it about them. And once they make it about them, 
they want to not only build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah, they want to, with their own hands, pick up that tabernacle and carry it around with them. And then they can open it up and they, everyone else can see Moses or Elijah hiding in there when they decide that they're going to open the door. There's this possessiveness. But when there is the crucifixion and resurrection, it's after the complete and utter failure and rejection by all the disciples. And then Jesus says, then you can tell anyone you want. <laughs> they all get to see finally how nobody got it. Nobody understands the kingdom. Nobody deserves to be in the kingdom. And at that point, now you can be open and now you can actually become a citizen of this kingdom who truly submits to its king. Well, and if you cheat and you know the end of the story, only a limited number of people behold the resurrected Lord. That's why talking about seeing the resurrected Lord is taboo. It's a very limited scope of people in the story who behold the resurrected Lord. To say that you can tell them after the Son of Man has been raised, whom only a very few select people will see as having been raised, only after that can you talk about his victory, is like saying you can only talk about his victory after everyone is convinced he lost and there's no way to prove that he won. That, my friends, is an impressive assault on Roman religion. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. My first reaction, of course, is the teaching of the Apostle Paul that you have to be careful in your dealings with people because you may be entertaining angels unaware. And that is certainly the case here. The scribes have a technical knowledge of the biblical narrative. Remember, they're grammaticians. They are the ones transcribing the text, which makes them the most knowledgeable. So they know the storyline. They know Elijah's role in First and Second Kings. They recall the way in which Elijah challenged not only Jezebel and the priests of Baal, but also Ahab and the people of Israel. They know that Elijah will come back to ensure that the Torah gains ascendancy over the nations, because that's the expectation in the Old Testament. But they, as Paul would say, read the story with blinders on, and because of those blinders, the blinders of nation and tribe and a worldly understanding of king and kingdom, which gets to the heart of Elijah's chariot in the Old Testament. What is the victory of Israel? What does it mean to see the chariots of God's kingdom? Is it a chariot like Caesar or is it something else? Their misunderstanding, their blindness made them blind to Elijah when he stood in their midst, namely John the Baptist. Their blindness will make them blind to their own treatment of the king of this kingdom they supposedly are living in anticipation of. There's a shared assumption between the disciples, Jesus, 
and the scribes that Elijah will come first. So the debate is, how come the scribes say he hasn't come yet, but you seem to think that he did? Jesus says he agrees with the scribes. Elijah truly will come first, and he's restoring things. He was the one who brought this teaching, who came and challenged both the conquerors of Israel and Israel and the kind of syncretism that was happening between them. He was also the one who was brought up in the fiery chariot to the heavens and didn't die in any conventional way. He was accepted immediately into God's bosom, a sign of acceptance of what Elijah was teaching. If you're the downtrodden and Elijah is going and speaking against all the power structures, you think, yeah, go get him, Elijah. But when you are the priest, when you are the ruler, then you say, where does Elijah get off talking like this to us? He's so disrespectful. As people in authority, especially the scribes, as people in authority, they don't want people taking them to school. Some guy like Jesus taking them to school, like they own the school, literally, because they run the school. Just like Peter was going to run the school if Jesus let him go and talk about this vision, the ones who run the school want to lock up the teaching and make themselves an important part of it. This is like a church denomination who says you can't understand Scripture unless you're part of our denomination. No, you can understand Scripture if you're given Scripture and you read it seriously. When the scribes hear someone who's challenging their interpretation, then this person can't be Elijah because they've interpreted Elijah to be somebody else. So the one who's actually acting like Elijah, they no longer can see, they no longer can, more importantly, hear, and they lose all sense and can't understand. So when Jesus says that Elijah came already, they didn't know him. They did whatever they felt like doing, and they're going to do the same to the Son of Man it's because they became the problem. If Peter were allowed to go and teach the teaching that he saw on the mountain, he would have been part of the problem. I don't know if he ever became part of the solution in the book of Matthew, at least, but he is the problem because he wants to lock up the teaching, and that's what the scribes are doing. Jesus wants us to understand that the teaching is now out there, and as soon as Jesus died and is risen, then everyone's failure, the failure of rule and the failure of kingdom and the failure of kings will all become apparent. I was listening to an interview with a radio announcer from the Pine Ridge Reservation. If you want to know what post-apocalyptic looks like, that's it. We have a God of the Old Testament who is waiting in Babylon for his people to come post-apocalypse. We have his son in Matthew who's waiting on the other side of death post-apocalypse. We have a post-apocalyptic God. God is the God of the Pine Ridge Reservation. His kingdom is going to look like a Pine Ridge Reservation. Who wants to get on board for that? Not a lot of people, actually, because they have their own teaching that they think should be the case. And when they want to lock up that teaching, they own it. They can no longer hear what the Scripture is teaching and therefore cannot understand the will of God. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. We have talked about the link between John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. It's explicit in the Gospel of Mark because, as Father Paul explains in his introduction to the New Testament with respect to the Gospel of Mark and the Pauline epistles, it is Paul who prepares the way of the Lord. 
Mark scrambled to write his gospel because Jerusalem betrayed Paul and he needed to ensure that Paul's teaching was preserved in the churches. And so you have this tradition that links John the Baptist in the story to the Apostle Paul, and John then becomes the carrier of Paul's teaching in the narrative, and Jesus is the embodiment of that teaching in the narrative. We talk a lot about how Jesus both carries and embodies the Torah, but Paul's teaching carries and embodies the Torah to the nations. So these literary parallels are important if you want to understand the narrative structure of Scripture in its entirety. That's why we always downplay the distinction between Old and New Testament in the way that people draw a distinction as though you have two competing traditions. Or worse, in which they explain that the New Testament adds something to the Old Testament. It does not. The New Testament extends the invitation to the nations. The New Testament in Matthew is coming down from the mountain of Exodus so that the pillar of fire can be a guiding light not only for the people of Israel, but for Jezebel and her priests. Now, just as Elijah heralds the kingdom, and in his chariot and ascendancy gives hope with a biblical sign of the coming kingdom, so too John the Baptist in Matthew heralds the coming kingdom with the sign of Jonah, which is the word of the scroll that is preached in the story. So, in a way, this Elijah and John the Baptist parallel, and by extension, it's linked to the tradition of Paul in the New Testament, explains very clearly the way in which the rule of Jesus, a son of man and a shepherd, ascending the throne, the way that his rule is different from the rule of Ahab or David or Caesar or Pharaoh because he's not going to rule on the basis of his ego or on the basis of the ego of a national agenda. He's going to rule on the basis of the law of God the Father. That is what it means to rule as a Ben-Adam and a shepherd. It means that you're not the one who's in charge. And this is the matrix of the New Testament. This is how Paul talks about the Roman household. It's the way in which we should think about any community of which we're a part. No one should be in charge, but the law of righteousness, which comes to us from the kingdom of the heavens. And this law of righteousness is something that's so difficult for anyone to understand. I just find it fascinating in chapters 17 and in 16, how many times Jesus is having to remind and repeat and reiterate and rephrase that he is going to be mistreated, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And this has happened so many times, and we have it again here. They're going to do whatever they want to this new Elijah and to the Son of Man as well. Now that the disciples finally are starting to make the connection that Elijah is John the Baptist, we have to understand that John the Baptist 
is this herald of the kingdom. He is this son of man that they were talking about when they were having their discussion above, that he's the one who brings the teaching. And when they think teaching, they think teaching like the scribes bring the teaching. They come with a book and a pencil and they go and they teach. John the Baptist was killed because he spoke against the powers that be according to the righteousness of God in the same way that Elijah did. The suffering at the hands of the powerful is part of the teaching as well. And Paul makes that very clear that he can't teach without the suffering that he's going through. That's part of his teaching is showing what God does in spite of human beings, in spite of human weakness. John the Baptist, who's the herald of the kingdom, Elijah, who's the herald of the kingdom, both suffered at the hands of the powerful. And then Jesus reminds them, and don't forget, the same is going to happen to me. What Jesus is trying to put in new words, since it's an impossible teaching, is that the king, the one who rules the kingdom, is going to suffer at the hands of the current kingdom, of the current kings. And this is essential. This is the key. This is the core of the teaching that Elijah taught, that John the Baptist heralded, and that Jesus fulfills and embodies and will bring to complete clarity by the end of the book. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw Elijah no more. It's the chariots of Israel, that flash of hope, that biblical sign, that is fulfilled here in the ascendancy of the Son of Man to the throne of David. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.